What do German underwear, Russian tanks, and Polish planes have in common? Episode 11 of the Booterverse. This is episode 11 of the Booterverse. We are now in the double digits and we could not be happier to be with you today. Now, let me tell you, we've got a special show for you. Professor Robert Farley is here and he's going to be talking about his new book, Grounded. Why the Air Force can shove it up their tailpipes. Those aren't his words, but they might as well be. We've got Judy Scheinbaum answering your questions. And of course, Vasily Krapov is back with us to tell us what's going on in the Ukraine. Get ready, Booterites. It's episode 11. Today's episode of the Booterverse is brought to you by Pinwheels. Pinwheels, because you spin me right round, baby, right round. And now for news in my orbit. Following the stunning revelation that German Chancellor Angela Merkel has owned and repeatedly worn a certain tunic for the last 18 years, an even more shocking sartorial tidbit has emerged from Schloss Bellevue, that Merkel has never changed her underwear. More shocking still, the German government has been involved in the cover-up since Merkel took office in 2005. In reusing outfits, Merkel's German practicality has endeared her to her thrifty constituency. After her election, most Germans polled in a government survey thought wearing underwear for more than a week at a time was kind of gross. Enter Heidi Braun, Merkel's chief underwear strategist whose job it is to create the illusion that the politician is, in fact, changing her underwear on a daily basis. She plants panties in the laundry baskets throughout Merkel's residence and makes sure they are casually strewn about her hotel rooms when she travels. Merkel's government is not as upset about the panty leak as it might have otherwise been, hoping that it might deflect some attention from the spy scandal that has been dogging her country's federal intelligence agency. Rumors are that there will now be an official government Undervash Cam, which will feature a daily candidate of Merkel in a wide variety of skivvies. Now turning to news that's simply black and white. I Hin, You're Busted, a planned live television broadcast of a rare panda birth at the Chengdu Giant Panda Breeding Research Center in China, had to be called off at the last possible moment when it was learned that the panda was, in fact, not actually pregnant. Even more shocking, like women the world over, she had been faking it all along. Panda pregnancies are hard to come by, since female pandas are rarely in the mood. Apologists note that pandas only mate for a few days every two or three years. For this reason, pandas who are suspect for this reason, pandas who are suspected to be pregnant are moved to private, air-conditioned quarters and given extra buns and fruit. And apparently, this clever gal was trying to game the system. Realizing she had to play it to the bitter end, the panda sunk into the birthing room just long enough for it to be discovered that she was not actually in labor. The decision has been made to now perform ultrasounds on all pandas who are suspected to be pregnant. After all, the research director said, buns are expensive. And now turning to the Middle East. Results of the Afghan presidential election are now expected to be delayed until at least mid-September, but it's not due to a recount. It is in fact due to an embarrassing computer error. Instead of the results of voting for their next leader, the government of Afghanistan was mistakenly sent the tallies of the contest for best Afghan at this year's Iowa State Fair. 
a representative from Afghanistan's ARG presidential palace in Kabul confessed that there was a period of confusion when the data they received from a Florida-based vote tallying service showed a Merle Hopkins narrowly edging out Alma Myers in what was apparently a hotly contested race. UN auditors were able to puzzle out the mistake and request the proper records. Hopkins has said she will be sending the prize-winning Afghan to the winner of the presidential contest and hope it wouldn't be a problem because, quote, it's hot over there. And now in feline slash human news. When is a kitty not a cat? According to Japanese toy maker Sanrio, it's when the kitty is Hello Kitty. In advance of an, in advance of an upcoming exhibit about the Japanese American National Museum, the company has taken great pains to correct the common misconception and has sparked a bitter controversy. Says Sanrio, Hello Kitty is not a cat. She's a cartoon character. She is a little girl. She is a friend. But she is not a cat. She's never depicted on all fours, and she walks and sits like a two-legged creature. Incensed, a writer from the gaming website Kotaku fired back that this was going too far and that insinuating that she is human is just plain wrong. The debate is expected to continue, and event organizers are bracing themselves for protests and potential rioting at the first-ever Hello Kitty Con in Los Angeles this October. In the midst of the chaos, Sanrio continues their campaign to humanize their creation, revealing that she is a Scorpio, weighs around three apples, loves to bake cookies, makes origami, and collects little stars. That's been it for News in My Orbit. Today's episode of the Buddhaverse is brought to you by Gluten Allergies. Gluten Allergies. Sure you do. Buddha. And now for a segment we like to call Back in the UU Ukraine with our foreign correspondent, Vasily Krapov. Vasily, you're on the Buddhaverse. Hello, Emery. It is good to seeing you again. Welcome. Thank you so much for having on the show. Let me tell you, things in Ukraine very crazy right now. Very crazy indeed. What I am now in the underground bunker discotheking. Vasily, did you just say that you were in an underground discotheque? Of course. Yes, of course. I am in underground discotheque because what do you have to do when the Russians bring in tanks and whatnot? You have to hide. And you've decided to hide in a discotheque. Where are you going to be hiding? Except for discotheking. Let me tell you, you can get groove on and uh, hopefully uh, get away from Russian aggressor. Very good timing. And you may get a drink or two. Let me guess, Vasily. You're a vodka fan? Well, of course. What Ukrainian is not vodka fan? Let me tell you, what is, what is else to drink? We take potato and we make vodka. I understand how things are. Let me tell you, you don't understand unless you're in Ukraine right now. Let me tell you, Russians drinking up all Ukrainian vodka. It is very sad. They're taking Ukrainian caviar into Russian vodka. It is not good. So they're stealing your property? Is that what you're saying, Vasily? Not only they steal property, also steal Ukrainian national anthem. This national anthem is on the the part of the late uh, lovely Britney Spears for you, okay? And they take it away from us. We cannot sing in the, the song of our people. Are you saying that your national anthem was sung by Britney Spears? No, of course not. She does not speak Ukrainian. I think she has IQ of, you know, 15 or something. Let me tell you. Britney Spears, lovely person. And I'm, I especially love picture of her in Houston Chamberlake in the, the denim uh, and the rhinestones. I love this uh, for them. And they are a perfect couple. I am so happy for them. Vasily, I hate to break this to you, but Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears are no longer together. What are you talking about? What do you mean they are no longer seeing each other making babies together? Um, 
Vasily, they never had any babies. Are you trying to tell Vasily, but they, they, they have no people that they... What? What? Hey, you've been Vasily speechless. Vasily, it's it's all right. It's just... Listen, they have been together for decades, and I am so happy for them. And I think to myself, if, if Justin and Brittany Timberlake can make it, that Ukrainian people can make it from this horrible place we are in right now with Russian aggression. Vasily, I... I don't know what to say. Couples break apart. Let me tell you, Ukraine broke apart from Russia. Let me tell you, they are not nice mistress. Let me tell you, they try to... They are like mother, okay, or nagging wife. They are always there. Do not let you drink the vodka you want. And then they make you clean the dishes and take out trash. It's not fun. No Russian... No Ukrainian man wants to be a part of this. No, this is bad relationship. Unlike Britney and Justin, that is a good relationship. I swear to goodness sakes that all foreign policy should look like Britney and Justin. But Vasily, they're no longer together. They broke up. Well, let me tell you, sometimes good breakup is necessary for foreign relations to move on. Let me tell you, I was one time dancing with a woman. She was very round and large, and she was crowding disco spacing for me, and I said, Madam, please move. She did not move fat uh, behind. And so I had to physically roll her out of discotheque. It was very sad and very hard to do. It took 15 men. Are you saying you have women that it would take 15 men to remove from a discotheque? Let me tell you, of course. Listen, Ukrainian women are biggest women in Eastern Europe. Let me tell you, we lead Eastern Europe in what some people call obesity. I call it plumpness, and I, I support all women of all kinds. Well, that's great, Vasily, but you haven't answered the question, why are you in an underground discotheque hiding from the Russians? Well, let me tell you, it is only place in Ukraine that you can get vodka. What can I say? Well, Vasily, I suppose that's a good enough reason than any. Stay careful out there, and I hope to see you soon. Well, of course, we'll see each other next week. We're Skyping on the, the internet channel. Listen, Russians crazy, but not stupid. They still have internet for us. It's nice time. I still get Jimmy Kim alive. I tell you, he is one funny man. <laughs> Thank you, Vasily. That's been another episode of Back in the U Ukraine. We'll be back right after this. Buddha. Today's episode of the Buddhaverse is brought to you by German Automobiles. German automobiles. Because why would you not love our car? You must love it right now! Buddha. And now for the last lung with Judy Scheinbaum. Judy, you're on the Buddhaverse. Hello, Emery. It's good to see you. How are we doing? I'm fine, Judy. Thank you so, so much. Well, let me tell you, we've got a lot of questions from a lot of listeners, so let's get down to it, shall we? Our first question is from Yolanda in Bakersfield, Missouri. What is a good alternative for turtle in turtle soup? Sweetheart, it's called turtle soup for a reason. There is no alternative. If it was possum, it would be called possum soup. If it was goldfish, it would be called goldfish soup. You can't be switching and swapping, swicking and swacking. You can't do it. It's not possible. So stick with the turtle if you want to eat the turtle soup. But I might suggest some frog legs if you're in the Franciscan mood. Our next question is from Gary and Gary, Indiana. Oh, how lovely, Gary and Gary. Dear Lord, did your mother plan that? She's so original, my God. Oh, hey, look, I'm Winterfeld in Winterfeld. Heaven's sakes. What if everybody was named after the town they lived in? I'm Medina from Medina. I'm Cleveland from Cleveland. It would be horrible. Your parents should be ashamed. But anyway, I'll take your question. You sweet, sweet man. This is what you ask. I've heard it's a thing for men to be on Pinterest. Is that true? Oh, sweetheart, you're a man, and you want to be on Pinterest? 
I don't know what you're packing below, and I don't know who you're letting near what, but seriously, if you're posting pictures of your favorite dame in movies, I think you've got a lot more questioning to do rather than whether you should be on Pinterest or not. Now, I'm not saying that there are stereotypes, but, you know, you should watch what you're doing when you're on the Pinterest. I suppose if you're pinning pinups, that would be fine. Pinning pinups, I like that. So maybe if you keep it very masculine, can you do like a, sort of like a lug nut page or board? I think that they call it boards. I was once on a board, a pinup if you will. That's true. I was 1967 college championship sweetheart. Mm. I'm not going to tell you where I went, but sweetheart, I got around. So seriously, if you want to rock and roll on Pinterest, you go do what you need to do. And seriously, give old Judy a shout out. Oh, my next question is from Lula in Philly. I love that name. It's very exotic. She says, do you clip coupons? It seems so overwhelming. Lula, if you are being overwhelmed by coupon clipping, then you might as well just give up. I don't know how you get out of bed, put on your face, put on your moo and face the world. If you can't clip coupons, what kind of person are you? Lula, lock it up. Oh, this is an interesting one. This is from Alice in Watertown, Massachusetts. She says, what should I do with my used bras? I hate to just throw them away. Is there a charity like Bras of Hope? Oh, sweetheart, there's no Bras of Hope. When your bras are that way, there are no hope from them. And what do you want? You want homeless women wearing your discarded pantyhose and bras? You should be ashamed. Those people deserve better. The wiring is obviously poking you in places that you wouldn't want to be poked, and yet you want the homeless to troll around in them. How dare you? It's like Kevlar vests for people who aren't in the military. Why would you do that? I can't walk around the streets of New York or wherever in a Kevlar vest or in bad brassieres, and you should be ashamed. But actually, there are a couple charities that you should look on. Uh, you can Google that, so don't. Uh, we'll, we'll talk later. I've got your number. This next question is from Marion in Pascaloosa, Missouri. Pasca, Pascagoula, Pasca, Pascagoula, whatever. What is the best way to care for your hardwood floors? Oh, sweetheart, if you have hardwood floors, I hope you're caring for them like I would on my upper lip. Wax, wax, and more wax. You're done. Oh, this is interesting and perhaps one of our last questions. This is from Denise in Morgantown, West Virginia. She says, what is your favorite tailgating recipe? I haven't been in a tailgate for quite some time, but let me tell you, when I was there, it was delightful. What I like to do is start with some sort of a shrimp uh, cocktail, and then when I'm doing some uh, some barbecuing, uh, what we do is we take it and we put it on there, a little beef brisket, it's lovely. Uh, and sometimes I like to put some um, broccoli coquettes on the fire, and it's just lovely. What was that? Oh, that's yeah, not tailgating. What the heck is tailgating? Oh. Oh, sweetheart, I don't watch professional sports. I find it very barbaric, but I will say those gentlemen in those tights are delightful. I'd like to tailgate that if you know what I mean. Well, my dears, I think that's it. This has been The Last Lung with Judy. I love you all. We'll be back right after this. Today's episode of The Buddhaverse is brought to you by Kilts. Kilts. Because nothing says easy access like a man in a skirt. Well, everybody, welcome back to this exciting episode of the Buddhaverse. I am sitting down with Professor Robert Farley. Rob, how are you today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I am excellent. It is great to have you in the studio and to be able to talk about your new book. Uh, but before we do, uh, let's talk about where you came from. You went to Washington 
Uh, but yet you like Oregon. Those ducks. Talk to me about that. Well, uh, I went to the University of Oregon as an undergraduate. Um, uh-huh. And in my part of the country, and I think a lot of parts, your uh, fundamental loyalty remains with your undergraduate institution. And there's a big rivalry between the two schools, but I've always been a duck. Wow, that's like going to Ohio State and then going to Michigan for your master's. That's It's got to be rough. Yes, yes, there'd be an aspect of that to it. But, you know, if anyone can persevere through that, I know... It's you. And you are a professor at the Patterson School of Diplomacy. What do you teach there? I teach national security courses. Uh, I've also uh, started teaching the Cornerstone Diplomacy course uh, at the Patterson School. Mm. So you are diplomatic in all things? That's what they tell me. Excellent. Well, maybe they're being diplomatic in what they're <laughs> telling you. Now, what um, sort of subjects do you cover uh, within either that diplomatic course or your military courses or national security force courses? Most of my interests are on national security, uh, specifically sort of the institutions and structure of national security. But I cover grand strategy. I cover air power, sea power, uh, land power, the construction of the national security state, um, diplomatic history and foreign policy history writ large. Excellent. Military industrial complex. How's that going? Uh, it seems to be going just fine, although the people in the military-industrial complex are always complaining there's not quite enough. Yes, how is that? It seems to me the defense budget keeps growing, and yet people still seem like they're not getting enough. It's hard to know how much is exactly enough, and uh, for the people who are in the industry, there used to be more, and so therefore there's not enough now. I'm weeping inside. <laughs> Tears of sadness for those national security folks who... <sighs> have been stranded on the financial shores of a, an economy in recovery, as they say. It's now, tough all over. It is tough all over. And with teaching military courses or courses in national security, are your students undergraduates, graduate students, um, and do they mostly focus in military aspects or do they focus in, in all kinds of different directions? The Patterson School, all of our students are graduate students, um, and we have about 35 students a year. Uh, oh, so it's very exclusive. It is exclusive. It's small. And uh, we have people focusing on d- diplomacy, development, commerce, economics, and in security. And I'd say we have about a quarter of the students specializing in security. Mm. Now, security, uh, is this like matrimonial security, uh, sort of financial security? What are we talking about here? Things that explode. Excellent. Speaking of things that explode, your new book has just gotten off the ground, and we're going to talk about that, and that's ironic because I said it went off the ground, and the title of it is Grounded. But we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a lovely family, if I may say so. Oh, thank you. Um, and I especially enjoy uh, messages from your daughters or, or sort of conversations that you have with your daughters. Have you learned more from them or your graduate students? Oh, most certainly from my daughters. Uh, Their interpretation of the world has been illuminating and how they approach uh, learning about new things and talking to new people has just been fascinating. What's the most poignant thing either one of them has said? Um, The most poignant thing, to be honest, is, uh, Daddy, am I going to die? Uh, Which uh, happened at age three and led to uh, what sounded like a two-week conversation on the nature of death um, with a three-year-old, which is always intense and deeply, uh, deeply sincere and earnest. And that came before, Daddy, are you going to die? That was sort of secondary. Right. Well, because they know of your place in the world and their place in the world, and certainly they wanted to understand the concept rather than, you know, what would maybe happen to you. Mm -hmm. Are they Ducks fans as well? They are Ducks fans, but they're also Cats fans. That's Um, right. And so everything they have known, this being Lexington, uh, has to do with the Wildcats. Excellent. Well, as the uh, locals will say, uh, go Cats. Exactly. 
Now, with teaching graduate students, uh, do you ever have any students that uh, aren't maybe in national security but want to learn more just about that? And they come to you and they say, Dr. Farley, teach us the ways of the world and national security. And how does that work when you're dealing with someone who may be focusing, I don't know, on like nonprofits, for example? I mean, to be honest, I love students who are uh, not national security specialists because there's uh, <clears throat> so much more you can teach them, right? A lot of the people who know a lot about national security who are interested in national security come in with a big knowledge base. And so it's fantastic having people who are interested in other aspects of the profession uh, and they want to take a course in national security and just seeing the wheels turn is very exciting to me. When I, when I, used to teach undergraduates. I loved teaching freshmen because they knew nothing, and that was the most most entertaining part of the job. You just like shaping and molding them, don't you, sir? Shaping and molding is the wrong word. Oh. Um, opening doors, I think, would be the right word. Wow. And what happened when those doors closed? Um, do you it's... open windows for them? <laughs> is that what you do, sir? You do your best. Well, as any good professor would do. So what's the most fun thing about national security? Is it the explosions and getting to see things blow up? Let's it, be honest. It genuinely, it genuinely is the explosions and the aircraft and uh, everything else. There was a wonderful video that I loved watching over and over again about Polish MiG-29 pilots called Fulcrum Drivers and just being able to not only watch that repeatedly, but also know what was going on was very exciting. How do the Poles do in the sky, sir? They're fantastic. They're very professional. Excellent. Well, here, here to the Polish people. Now, do you have a favorite branch of the military? Uh, my favorite branch is almost certainly the Navy. It's uh, always been my, my central interest. Mm-hmm. I see. This is very illuminating because your book is about grounding the Air Force, abolishing it, getting rid of it. And so, hmm, that's very telling. Mm -hmm. hmm. Do you ever get uh, into tiffs at conferences, perhaps fisticuffs over which branch is better? I'm not sure fisticuffs would be quite right, but I certainly get into debates um, with interesting people, uh, and there are always people who have uh, different attitudes. It's hard to, um, it's hard, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because it's hard to imagine a different set of institutions and structures than we had before, that, than we've had since 1947. Um, and so proposing something like this almost invariably sparks an interesting discussion. Now, am I correct in thinking that the Air Force got started with the National Security Act? Is that correct? 1947, yeah, the Air Force came into existence. Before that, it was the United States Army Air Force, and then the United States Army Air Corps, and then there were other antecedents before that. And that's what you're sort of pushing for again, right? That, that air power would be given to the different branches of the military and sort of the, the Air Force would be sort of abolished. Right, right. That the Air Force would effectively be reduced from the status of a service and its personnel and equipment would be integrated into the Army and the Navy um, where they would be sort of better fitted to be uh, integrated into the missions that the Army and the Navy do. Is it just that you don't like their uniforms? Oh, I quite like their uniforms. Their, their uniforms are nice. They quite like their uniforms as well. Um, it's not quite as cool as the Navy's camouflage uniforms, if you've ever seen them. It's, if, if Navy camouflage makes no sense um, if you want to fall off a ship and then not be seen. But um, no, the uniforms are, are quite lovely, but uh, it's the mission itself that I don't uh, particularly, doesn't appeal to me. When did this love of the Navy and the military begin for you? Uh, to be honest, it was my grandfather. He served in the military in World War II, and he helped build, actually, the airfields uh, in the uh, Marianas uh, that some of the, uh, the B-29 campaign was undertaken from. Um, and he had a deep interest in uh, the Air Force and in the Navy. And so um, in that sense, I was as interested or more interested than every uh, eight-year-old boy in airplanes. I just never lost that interest. Do you still make model airplanes? 
I don't, but I buy itty bitty diecast airplanes for my girls. Oh, and how do they feel about that? They love them. Excellent. They do love they them. do they have any Barbies that maybe they try to put on the planes, or are they just not interested in that sort? No, of they do that too. They do that. They they line the planes up with their uh, dolls and with their stuffed animals and have uh, tea parties with them. Excellent, because as planes go, I mean, we've had a Cars movie, mm-hmm. and I think there actually was a Planes movie. There was, yeah. Did they see the movie? They did not see the movie. We haven't we haven't had the opportunity to see it yet. Mm. Last movie they saw was the Lego movie. Did they like the Lego movie? They adored the Lego movie. Because everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. Have they been seeing that around the house still? Oh, no, 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 no. The uh, movie they saw before the Lego movie was Frozen, and so that still has a grip on their imagination. So oh my. Let It Go is uh, acapella versions are rendered in my house uh, pretty regularly. Mm. Have you ever thought about letting it go, sir? I have. I mm. really do. In fact, sometimes I tell them, let it go, like sort of the toy that they hold, happen to be holding on to that I want to get away from them. Just let it go. <laughs> I wish that they would heed more of that let it go mantra but you know it is what it is you know young women will do well, women of any age i suppose will do whatever they pretty much want to do <laughs> speaking of doing what you want to do um what this this book let's 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 get down to brass tacks about it grounded um were you trying to be provocative or do you really don't dislike the air force that much do you have a four-star general somewhere that you've got a beef with i, I mean know. maybe you do i don't know that's why no, although the uh, chief of staff of the Air Force uh, recently said something along the lines, this was an idea that we have to uh, put a bullet in the head of um, or put a bullet in, into this idea right now, abolishing the Air Force. So that was uh, that was quite inspiring. Um, no, I, I have nothing against the Air Force. I love airplanes. I deeply respect the people who fly them. My best friend in high school um, uh, now flies F-15s. Um, and uh, I just don't feel it's the best way of organizing our institutions. And I think there's a better way that we can, we can approach it. We need to think about that. Do you feel that those in uniform may not respect you as much because you don't wear one? I think that that's, that's true to some extent. Um, I would say that the people in uniform who I've had the conversations with, I, I, who I've had conversations with actually don't have any problem respecting um, the argument because they are regularly um, in conversations with uh, civilians who are part of the security field, whether at the various staff colleges and war colleges and so forth. It's other civilians who tend to ask the question, well, were you in the military? And if not, then how can you possibly know something about this? Um, the people in uniform tend, I think, to have a pretty healthy understanding of, of what their profession is and the relationship between their profession and my profession. Well, it seems like a healthy respect and dialogue is is very much uh, appreciated as well as necessary to continue growing and evolving as a country and as a military force. Speaking of that, you wrote an article in The Diplomat, and that will be available on our website. We'll post a link to it. And it says, Erectile Dysfunction and Strategy. Is there a lot of erectile dysfunction in the military, sir? <laughs> was I was I chasing clicks for that? I don't think that I was. Listen, there's there's nothing wrong with chasing clicks. <laughs> as long as you don't have to run clicks, chasing them is, is more than fine. Uh, the reason I chose that is uh, there was a Chinese general who uh, argued that the United States was effectively a paper tiger, and he used the phrase that the United States has erectile dysfunction. Um, and that wasn't something that was just out of the blue. Um, there's a lot of our strategic discourse that is conducted in very masculinist terms, right? Um, things about being very manly and being very tough, um, being able to face down an opponent, um, all uh, you know, sort of as if this were the playground with two six-year-old boys about to fight each other. Um, and part of my reason for 
using that title and for taking that on is I think that's exactly the wrong way to think about um, national strategy, right? That we shouldn't actually um, uh, uh, indulge in that sort of competition and that sort of rhetoric when we're talking about the affairs of state and things where uh, thousands and even millions of people might die or suffer because of the things we do. We should put away childish things, and in this case, childish, th childish things are uh, macho posturing. Indeed. However, erectile dysfunction is not a childish thing. With the amount of money we've put into curing men with this horrific blight, I mean, it should be one of our national priorities, don't you think? Listen, I have long been aware of your concerns about erectile dysfunction, and I appreciate and sympathize. That um, and a receding hairline. I mean, look <laughs> at my brow. I mean, hello. It's retreating faster than, you know, Napoleon. Indeed. The man did not learn his lesson. He, get a, he got a second chance at being emperor, and he screwed it up again. Right, there we go. Sad. Mm -hmm. Sad little man. Right. God bless him. But there's actually a connection. There's a connection because even sometimes the way we think about uh, military force is talked about in these very macho, masculinist terms that I think do more to obscure um, national strategy and our national institutions. Um, and if you have ever seen, for example, Dr. Strangelove, the opening five minutes of Dr. Strangelove is a montage of United States Air Force aircraft and missiles that essentially is a discussion of the phallic nature of our weapon systems, which has sort of as an undertone why men love these weapons so much. And we do love these weapons because they're beautiful. But of course, they're also deeply phallic and they also speak to, um, and this is not just the Air Force, obviously, but they also speak to sort of a very masculine understanding of what the world ought to look like. So should we have more women within the ranks of the, the military upper echelons to help guide and tamp down on the sort of masculine rhetoric? Absolutely. I think it would uh, change the institutions. I think it would change the institutions for the better. Um, this isn't to say that we want a 75% female uh, Air Force or Navy. Um, what we want is uh, an equitable distribution um, and a diverse distribution in our military services so that they look like the country. And so we have a vision of our national security that um, is more in keeping with what our vision of America ought to be. A lot of people don't know this, but women have played an integral part in intelligence, uh, within our military? Um, in the intelligence services, there's certainly um, a greater portion of women in the intelligence community. Of course, you still have some of the sort of old tropes about um, where women ought to be and, and how they're, they're supposed to act in these sort of contexts. But um, if you visit Langley, if you visit the CIA, you'll find a tremendous number of, of women who are part of the organization. Excellent. So are the days where women were sort of castigated to the sidelines, is that over now? I don't think that that's over because old uh, old patterns endure and they endure for a very long time. Um, but I think that ch things are changing for the better. Do you have a favorite Secretary of State or Defense? Oh goodness! Um, <clears throat> with respect to the Secretary of Defense, um, almost everybody seems to think that everyone has been terrible, um, <laughs> and so people normally have opinions about which is the worst Secretary of Defense, whether ah. it's McNamara or Rumsfeld. Um, I think I read most of Robert Gates's book, um, and we now sort of have a different view of Gates than we did even a few years ago. But I think that he took a defense department that was in a very difficult position and did the very best anyone could have done with it. Um, and so um, I think that Robert Gates is, is one of the better secretaries of defense. I honestly think Dick, Dick Cheney was not a bad secretary of defense when he was secretary of defense. Um, 
With respect to Secretary of State, um, that, that's such a fascinating question. Jim Baker was a great Secretary of State. There have been many others over the years who've done the job in an in interesting way. You know, mm-hmm. why does H.W. Bush not get enough credit for his, you know, foreign policy? I feel like he's a sort of a footnote, and he was such a nice little guy. Because U.S. presidents are not primarily judged on their foreign policy. They're not reelected on their foreign policy, which, of course, is why George H.W. Bush was not reelected. That's right. Um, I'll tell you what. We talked about the economy, and it was good. I'll tell you what catapulted me in 92, and it was a lovely time. Right, precisely. And uh, the history has had a broader appreciation of George H.W. Bush since he left office. But even, even at the time, um, he rated well in terms of foreign policy. People thought that he'd done a fairly good job at uh, managing the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and or the decline of the Soviet Union and at managing the Iraq situation. So, um, But again, people don't get reelected on, uh, on foreign policy. Nor on erectile dysfunction. I suppose that that's true. I mean, nobody's been. I wonder. I wonder how many presidents struggled with that, and they were presidents simply because they couldn't keep things right uh, between the sheets, as they say. Well, I mean, from the history of uh, presidential affairs that we seem to have, um, which seems extensive, uh, the suggestion would would appear to be not that many of them, right? Um, but I think it's very hard to know. Well, I'll tell you what. That silent cow was a bit of a bit of a stallion in his uh, machinations uh, trying to pursue women. A lot of people don't know that. Well, his predecessor was as well, um, uh, Warren G. Harding, who was uh, uh, at one point found in the White House uh, in a closet with his paramour. Um, and Whoops. so uh, there's the, a long history of presidential affairs. On so many levels, really. Right, right, right. Now, getting back to Grounded, because I really do, I love the book, I've read it. Uh, I thought it was a compelling case. As always, I stay neutral. I'm the Switzerland of talk show hosts, mm-hmm. I think, of podcasters. I like to, to take ideas, roll them around in my head, uh, come to conclusions, but I don't let anybody know. <laughs> Other than the, you know, the one military general who wanted to, quote unquote, put a bullet in the head of your idea, mm-hmm. how has your book been received among either the intelligentsia or, or active members of the military? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, it, uh, I can say that it's doing better in, at, um, in terms of, uh, people tell me that it's selling well for an academic book, and I don't know whether they're trying to console me or congratulate me, because um, of course academic books you know, rarely, rarely sell very many copies at all. Um, in terms of the reviews, there have certainly been some hostile reviews. There have been some thoughtful reviews. Um, even the hostile ones are fine with me if there's evidence that they've read the book. Um, there are some where there's no evidence that they have read past the subtitle, um, and, and that's, uh, that's troubling to me. Uh, you know, the reviews at Amazon seem fine, so uh, as long as the reviews there are fine, I suppose I'm okay. Well, and just so you all know, you listeners know, we will have a link to get grounded on our website. So if you're interested in the material, uh, I would suggest that you go out and buy the book, not only for Robert's sake, but... Uh, for the sake of learning and growing in your own thought. Well, and more importantly for my children, right? Because who knows, some percentage of every sale goes to my children. Absolutely. And will in perpetuity, given copyright laws. Right, exactly. Um, So even after uh, your unfortunate passing, uh, God willing, that won't be for a long, long time, (laughs) uh, they'll still get a little bit of an incentive from, from the book. 
Hopefully it still sells, you know, in, in decades time. We would certainly love to think that that would be possible. But by that time, it's probable that your book will have come to pass. Well, and then... see, that was, that was one, of the, one of the reviewers uh, early on on the project uh, said something along those lines. He said, look, this will never happen. Um, but because it'll never happen, it'll always be relevant. Um, Ooh, excellent. in the extraordinarily unlikely event that it actually does happen, it will be visionary. So uh, that this book will, you know, this is always going to be a good book for the press to have. Beyond that, in terms of our strategic air assets within the other different branches, where does this fall? I mean, because we've got a lot of conflicts going on right now. It's a medium to long term concern, right? This this is a major organization like this, a reorganization like this is not something that you want to undertake um, in the middle of a conflict. Um you know, whether the current fights that we're having are something that rise to the level of a conflict you really have to worry that much about is a or different kind of question. Um, but this is something you want to do when you have, like we did in 1947, when we re- reorganized into the Air Force, the Army, and the Navy from just the Army and the Navy. We thought that conflict with the Soviet Union was possible, but we also believed that it would be a few years down the road. And so there was time to work through the organizational kinks um, and come up with a different set of institutions that would function together appropriately and so this is a a medium to long-term vision right it's something that helps out in the medium to long term it's not something that you want to undertake and you want to carry out in a day or a week or a month you need to have a strategy for doing so over time speaking of the conflicts that that are going on right now uh, to say you have a favorite is a little disingenuous so I won't ask you that question but what ranks perhaps highest or most high on your on your list of conflicts right now that we really need to address the two conflicts that are most important right now are obviously the uh, conflict against isis the islamic state in iraq and the conflict in ukraine um i think that the conflict in ukraine and the sort of continued aggression of russia into ukraine um is more important in the long term than the conflict in iraq Um, But at the same time, it's far less tractable for the United States. The United States can actually do something productive about the Islamic State right now um, through carrying out support of Iraqi forces, carrying out support of Kurdish forces, um, engaging in airstrikes from both Navy and Air Force platforms against uh, against ISIS, um, carrying out humanitarian relief ops. There's not a lot to be done uh, in Ukraine. Uh, because we do not want to engage ourselves, and I don't think we should engage ourselves in a direct war against the Russians. Um, but I think that in the long term, this conflict uh, in Ukraine is going to be more important than the one that's happening in Iraq. Interesting. Because doesn't Vladimir Putin know that? Doesn't he know that we're probably not going to get that entrenched in the Ukraine, which is giving him sort of the license to do what he's doing? I mean, today when we're recording, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it was reported, uh, you know, caravan of tanks, you know, sort of rolled into the Ukraine. I mean, that's legitimately an act of war. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Um, at the same time, I think that uh, President Putin is sensitive to costs. He understands that um, while there's a, a lot of nationalist feeling in Russia right now, and there's a lot of anger towards the West and anger towards Ukraine, that the West can make him pay, and they can make him pay in ways that make Russia an international pariah. Um, I don't actually think that that was his goal when he started that, and I think in some sense events have boxed him in um, to this particular outcome, and that it's not going to work out for Russia in the long term. Stealing Crimea is not going to work out. And Um, yet he moves in, though. 
he keeps moving forward. He's he's in a very difficult position. He has people who are attacking him on his right flank in Russia. Um, and if Ukraine were to reconquer the provinces um, from the Ukrainian separatists, he would have a great deal of trouble in his own government. This isn't to be too sympathetic for Putin, because I think he does have this vision of greater Russia. Right, um, plus the hair loss. Right, exactly. Um, and it probably cuts into his exercise schedule as well. And perhaps a little uh, ED, if you know what I, I mean. I wouldn't even... I wouldn't even... Uh, I mean, a I man just want to make sure for Russian intelligence that I didn't say that and I wasn't sympathetic with that comment. A man who rides basically one, not me. a bareback on a horse shirtless has got to be compensating for something. You know, again, this is this is uh, an opinion that is not held by myself, uh, any Russian listeners. Um, but uh, Putin being president and being a statesman is also sensitive to costs. Um, and so he has to understand that it's a problem for him not to be able to travel abroad. And it's a problem for him to be hit by sanctions from all these countries. Um, and so I think that's why he has taken this with, with a degree, not a huge degree, but a degree of restraint thus far. Now, some would say, I mean, and, and, and I sort of sympathize with your opinion in terms of restraint, but some would say, you know, the action that he has taken is absolutely not restrained at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. If Vladimir Putin was being unrestrained right now, then Russian troops would be in Kiev uh, because there is absolutely Ooh. there is no military action that NATO would take against a full conventional, uh, full scale uh, invasion of Ukraine. And Excellent I think that point. Vladimir people Vladimir Putin understands that, and I think that a lot of people understand that. Um, and so to say that he's not acting with some restraint and that he's not sensitive to costs, I think absolutely wrong. Speaking of NATO, how difficult would it be to be the general secretary thereof, and could I have a chance in getting that job? It would be extremely difficult uh, for you to get that job, but starting off in the Patterson School is not a bad place to go, especially if you're not American. What about the bow ties, though? I mean, does that have any cachet in the international world? Does the bow tie have any, you know, if President Putin appeared in a bow tie, um, I believe, if you could make that happen, then I believe that the bow tie... Um, would would uh, sort of reappear as a major uh, fashion statement in the Western and the Eastern world. Wow. Well, let's get on that campaign. Vlad, if you are listening or your intelligence services are listening <laughs> because I know you're out there, uh, suggest perhaps to the president that he don a bow tie and not just in a tuxedo format, but perhaps a, a sort of a Churchillian sort of blue with the white polka dots. Think about it. Get back to us here at the Booterverse. We'd love to see him in that look. I think it would go a long way to softening Vlad's uh, image. And uh, I think the Western world uh, could sympathize a little bit more uh, with him. So think about it. Indeed. Who has the best Air Force in the world right now? The United States has the best Air Force in the world right now. Woohoo! <laughs> exactly. Go USA. If there were more than just uh, three of us in the studio right now, perhaps I would have led a chant uh, but in, indeed, who has the second best? Who are we competing the against? The world's second best Air Force. Now, this is an interesting question. Um, I suppose that I would say that the um, French have sufficiently modernized their Air Force. Do they have wine holders in the cockpits? You know, and, that's a really good question. And does it come with a side of brie, perhaps? Sort <laughs> of a compartment with delightful French cheeses. That would be delightful, and I don't know the answer to that question. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that being French, they have an appreciation of the better things, and so they know how to treat their fighter pilots correctly. Indeed. I mean, think about flying, you know, sort of, um, 
you know, exercise missions over Normandy, for example. Not getting too close to Britain because you don't <laughs> want, you know, you don't want to alarm anyone. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, and you're sipping on some lovely, uh, lovely French red wine and you're just enjoying the flight. Right. The Indians are also reputed to have some of the best pilots in the world. Um, and the Indians flying uh, Russian and Soviet aircraft. Is it the curry? That's an interesting question. Uh, I, I, I think that they, um, the reason the Indians are so well, have done so well is because they borrow Russian technology and they've used British training methods. Well, they're just stealing from everyone. Exactly, but you're stealing from the right people. And seriously, why can't they use that lovely bent toward a, a technological and, and intellectual prowess when they're, they're manning the phone banks? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's an anathema to me. I don't get it. Is there a group that you want to join that you've not been asked to join? Um, is there a group that I want to join? But I, you know, before before about a month ago, I would have said Kentucky Colonels, but then I became a Kentucky Colonel. So you I, are a Colonel. Do I have indeed. to salute you? Uh, I don't think that that's part of it. Believe it or not, I'm not even sure I'm allowed to call myself Colonel. But ah, do you have a sword of some sort? I wish I did. I think I need a sword. Mm. I mean, I wondered if, you know, perhaps you served on the Council of Foreign Relations, something like that. They asked for your wit and wisdom in the halls and of that secretive group. You know, I, 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 I've known people who are part of CFR, and I... Uh, and how uh, secretive is it? Them. It's not that secretive, really. Um, and uh, I've, I've never been part of it, so... Mm. Well, let's... Do you want to start that campaign right here, right now? I think I'm fine. I think I'm okay. fine where I am. Okay, because we can get, you know, we'll get a website <laughs> up. We'll get, you know, Farley for CFR. Facebook page, Facebook page. Absolutely. There are people in your corner, sir. Uh-huh. And the government listens. Indeed. Because if there's one thing we know about our lovely United States government is that their ear is always to the needs of the people. Exactly. Especially the National Security uh, a- Agency. Absolutely. And is that a closed group? I mean, honestly, like the, the people and in the individuals making those decisions, is it primarily just government workers and, and that's it? Or, or are oftentimes ac- academics and, and other individuals pulled in to help make those decisions? Um, generally, in terms of national security decisions, uh, the government takes uh, a lot of pains to bring in academic opinion and other sort of uh, journalistic opinion. Um, and so there are lots of different ways that um, the government brings in outside people who aren't employed by the government. Do you think we're going to be in Iraq for another decade? Uh, I think in some form we're going to be protecting the Iraqi state for at least another decade. Whether that's simply through airstrikes, um, acting as the Iraqi Air Force, um, or is a a more robust uh, uh, presence in Iraq, um, I think we're certainly going to be part of Iraqi life for at least another decade. The Mm. same thing with Afghanistan. Have you ever been able to to travel to those lands? I haven't. I've uh, I have wanted to uh, travel to Afghanistan, but I haven't had the opportunity. Do you have any Kevlar vests? At this point, I doubt that my wife would allow me to travel to Afghanistan, which is mm. yeah, that, which is obviously the the ability not to go to Afghanistan is um, a luxury that many people don't enjoy, especially those who serve in the, the United States military. Um, but for me, I think my wife would be uh, quite troubled if I visited. A dangerous area. Absolutely. I understand that. But, you know, we get you in the green zone in Iraq. You know, we get in the U.S. Embassy. I mean, it's huge. It's palatial, really. Indeed. Uh, you know, you could have a set-up camp there and uh, just enjoy some time in, in Iraq. That would be lovely. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking sort of like a Barbados spa. That's kind of what <laughs> I'm assuming, you know, the mission is like in, in Iraq. Perhaps we could think of something South Pacific rather than Iraq. Mm, yeah.
Well, you know, there's sand. <laughs> you know, there has been a lot going on. You know, I, I feel like in the last two months, conflicts are springing up like daisies. Can't we just all get along? Not on terms that all of us are willing to agree with, right? Every conflict can be ended by the other side surrendering. Um, but uh, we... we uh, we continue to have political conflicts, and these political conflicts manifest uh, in military uh, military ways. So. so, if you're saying that we all surrendered, we'd all be fine. That would be that would be perfect. Mm. So, is that what you want to leave us on, sir? Surrender <laughs> is the key. Uh, it's the key for the other guy. Ah. Well, in terms of surrender, do not surrender to your desire to not buy the book Grounded. Go out and buy it. You're going to be glad you did. And actually, there are little planes on the top. I'm not saying that Dr. Farley made these and put these together. They sort of look like they're little models. Um, but, you know, it's a possibility. Yeah, they're actually, those are photos of the uh, B-52s that have been taken apart in the boneyard in Arizona. It's an aerial photo. Well, Arizona playing a part. I love it. Indeed. I always give our guests the opportunity to address the listening audience, tell them something we've not covered, share anything, plug anything, say well wishes to anyone. So, sir, the floor is is yours. Uh, thank you for uh, having listened. And uh, let me recommend uh, that if you find any of this interesting, that you should visit my blog, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, www.lawyersgunsmoneyblog.com. And then the book is Grounded, The Case for Abolishing the United States Air Force. Well, Robert Farley, it has been lovely to have you here on The Booterverse. Well, thank you for having me. Well, that's been another episode of The Booterverse, and we'll be right back. Here at The Booterverse, we want to extend a special thanks to Professor Robert Farley. Thank you to Courtney and Sonny and our production team for making all of this possible, and to Quadrants for composing our theme song. And if you haven't had enough of me here on the podcast, you can join me on social media at The Booter. Not only are we on Facebook and Twitter, but for those of you so sartorially inclined, I'm also on Pinterest. Why on Pinterest? Well, you know, men should be on Pinterest. Booter. I know interstellar travel is a bit difficult, but the Booterverse is only a click away.